This is episode 236 of IDRA Class Notes. Me being who I am in the advocacy space, I am there to be a counter-narrative, and I am there, along with all of my colleagues, to be an oppositional force so that they don't think that we aren't here, that we aren't present. We are everything but silent and we are everything but victims. We are there to put our flag in the ground and say, no, you will not hurt us. We will not let you hurt us. And we will do everything in our power to make sure that we get justice and that we hold you accountable because at the end of the day, you work for us and that's not the other way around. Welcome to the Class Notes podcast series featuring reflections from IDRA's Education Policy Fellows. My name is Morgan Craven. I'm the National Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Community Engagement at IDRA. And I'm so excited to host this podcast series along with my incredible colleague, Michaela Arciaga, whose voice you can hear in episodes three and four. During this podcast series, you'll hear from our Education Policy Fellows, who are so amazing Steve Kengang, Diana Long, Alicia Tuff, Jonathan Peraza-Campos, and Ruth M. Yoon. Please check out their bios and work using the link in this podcast. So in episode two of the series, we're going to talk about being advocates of color and the specific communities whose perspectives and expertise we're seeking to support and amplify. I'm going to start with a question for all of you. And Tuff, if you don't mind going first, how have your cultural and ethnic identities shaped your advocacy experience? Um, And what benefits and challenges did you recognize and experience as an advocate of color in Texas and Georgia? And Tuff, if you don't mind kicking us off. Yeah, hello everyone, I'm Tuff. And I personally am a young black woman in I like to bring all of me to every space that I am, and I like to be authentically me. And for me, uh, stepping in the legislative space could be a lot, and oftentimes to not in my advocacy experience at the ledge, I just saw like a lot of tokenism in which for certain bills they would bring. Uh, People from my background that look just like me and use them to try to pass something that will very much harm our community as a whole. And so to discourage that, I try to leverage the data that's out there and use like research based information because ultimately, at the end of the day, I know. Black and brown students are being impacted by the school to prison pipeline, and the data is on my side. And so, to make sure the tokenism isn't being used to ostracize or misconstrue the message, I try to use my story and research that I knew of to better advocate not only by bringing to the attention of the ledge members like documentation of the actual data out there, but by showing them like one pages of different resources 
to help them to ensure that bad bill for Thank you so much, Tuff. Some really important points. Steve, do you want to pick up on that and just talk about, you know, your personal experiences and sort of benefits and challenges that you recognize being an advocate of color? Yes, uh, absolutely. So just culturally having grown up in an urban neighborhood um, from an urban community and background and marginalized background, I felt that those experiences really helped me bring my full self into my advocacy work and also made it that much more impactful as to why it had to be done. Also coming from like attending different public schools as well, all public schools like throughout elementary, middle and high school, they were really enriching to me in, in many ways that helped me in, in my advocacy work as well. So for example, one of the challenges that I felt that I had was not seeing many other like black males in, in the advocacy space, right? But a lot of ledger work that was being done would be affecting a lot of students and lawmakers that, for example, couldn't relate because they themselves weren't Black or just didn't have those experiences, would not have had the insights of the implications that some processes were trying to move forward uh, would have on these students in the future. One example of that was, for example, with House Bill 2615, which uh, sought to sort of create vocational uh, pathways and for high school students to date, we were able to successfully stop that from moving forward. And I was able to testify on that on behalf of IDRA and so were other advocacy members um, because had it passed, it would have essentially created vocational education pathways as alternative options in high schools for students, but that would have severely impacted marginalized and underrepresented students moving forward from being able to qualify if they had wanted to then attend college post that because they wouldn't have had the right credits necessary for them. So I think in that regard, having been, you know, one of the few, you know, black male, well, I think only actually black male that was that testified on that versus the impact that it would have had had it passed was one of the many moments where I realized my my work as a as a person of color was very impactful in that regard. Yeah, thank you so much for that example. Critical that your presence was there, but certainly um, a lonely feeling that a lot of us share in these spaces. Diana, can we turn to you with the same question, just given your personal identity and interesting connections between where you come from, Edgewood ISD, and the issue that you worked on, school funding in Texas? I know that you have talked about your own personal connection to this work. Can you talk about just your advocacy experience and challenges and benefits of your identity when it comes to doing this work? Yeah, so I think as advocates of color, we each bring something beautiful to the space. And I think that in and of itself is a benefit. For me, being able to represent the interests and concerns of communities that have been historically marginalized or underrepresented was truly a great honor. And I think that's what kept me going. And on the other hand, I personally felt a lot of emotional labor and burnout that I felt throughout the session. As an advocate of color, I faced additional emotional labor as I attempted to navigate spaces where I felt I wasn't seen or heard or people from my community haven't been seen or heard. As you mentioned, Morgan, I come from Edgewood ISD. I'm a proud Edgewood grad. I attended those schools from kindergarten to 12th grade. And I come from a family who can't even vote. And my parents are immigrants. My grandparents were immigrants. So I constantly felt like advocating for a change was challenging. And I was challenging a, a power structure 
that was so, so ingrained in society. And, and that took an emotional toll on me. But I think on the other hand, I come out and I, in retrospect, I couldn't be more proud of, of what I accomplished. And, and with obviously the, the help and work of the collaboration of this organization and others, but to be an Edgewood grad and being right in front of the Senate Education Committee and testifying against vouchers was it was just mind blowing. And, and I'm really happy that I got to do that. And I think for future generations, I always think of who's behind me, my children, my friends, children, and, and everyone else, they're going to look at this moment and they're going to look at me and say, okay, well, if she did it, then I can do it too. And I think I try to hold that sentiment in every work that I do. So that's something that I'm really proud of. Thank you. And I know all the people you named are proud of you too. And we are too. Jonathan, what about you? I think when it comes to how I moved in the legislative session and in this advocacy work, I try to be really bold and being who I am, all of the parts of who I am that make me. I am a gay man. I am a Latino from an immigrant family, from a single mother household. I'm an educator and organizer who survived the under-resourced schools that are being further under-resourced to this day. I'm from communities that have been criminalized and terrorized by racist, anti-immigrant, and anti-poor policies. So when I walk into these legislative spaces, I am very intentional about looking the people legislating against me in the eyes to hold them accountable, to demand and understand, why do you want to silence me, disenfranchise me, even try to exterminate me and my community? You know, I want them to look me in the eyes and tell me why they want to harm me. And I want them to lie to me in my eyes after I've given them all of the truths, all of the facts and the figures about an objective reality while they bring in a prejudiced subjective reality that they are trying to make legislation. And so I try to be very bold in all of those pieces and I demand the truth, why I at least demand that they answer to me as somebody that, you know, they work for me, they work for you, they work for us. And so why are you trying to hurt me when it is your job to hold my interests at heart and to put that into policy? And so I I think that me being who I am in the advocacy space, I am there to be a counter narrative. And I am there along with all of my colleagues to be an oppositional force so that they don't think that because we are not acting, because we are being silent, that we that we aren't here, that we aren't present. We are everything but silent and we are everything but victims. We are there to put our flag in the ground and say, no, you will not hurt us. We will not let you hurt us. And we will do everything in our power to make sure that we get justice and that we hold you accountable because at the end of the day, you work for us and that's not the other way around. Podcasts can't show you shivering, but that is happening. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for that. Your energy has been an important part of this fellowship. And I know we all benefit from hearing you speak about your experiences. Ruth, can we turn to you for this question? How have the different parts of your identity sort of shaped your work? And as you were doing this work in the Georgia General Assembly, like how did they create opportunities present barriers to you engaging in the process? My family is from Taiwan and China. I was born in the States though. So I was raised in a community where I was minoritized and had the sense that my being silenced or dismissed was just a part of life in the United States. I didn't feel entitled to an opinion. And as a result, I felt early on in the advocacy process here 
in Georgia that if I had a chance to express myself or to speak, that I should feel very grateful. Me, an immigrant, a non-legislator, I should be thankful to have this opportunity. But towards the end of this fellowship and from everything that I learned and spending lots of time with Jonathan and hearing these kinds of thoughts and experiences that he just shared with us here, I realized that I was indeed entitled to an opinion and I deserve to have an opportunity to speak my mind and to tell the truth as I see it. So when I testified at the Georgia Professional Standards Commission meeting a few weeks ago, I changed my approach. Instead of bringing gratitude to the podium, I brought a very polite kind of indignation. And I specifically didn't tell anyone thank you for their time because you know what? I deserve your time. So as far as the benefits, I really had a hard time thinking about like, how is it beneficial that I am who I am? I leveraged my invisibility as a light-skinned East Asian, and I leveraged people's general confusion over what to do with me. I'm not Black. I'm not white. I might be a college student. I might not. I might be a native English speaker. I might be a foreigner. This allowed me to do a lot of observing and sitting in spaces without being bothered. It also allowed me to meet my senator, who's the chair of the Senate Education Committee, who invited Jonathan and I onto the Senate floor and gave us a little tour and a photo opportunity with the lieutenant governor. Like, I think that's part of this interesting, strange place that I feel as a light-skinned Asian person. And Jonathan mentioned this earlier. There's absolutely no language accessibility at the Capitol. It's not even in Spanish, and there's definitely no sign language. So it's clear that the demographics of the policymakers and even the lobbyists is what it is because the information is being gatekept by being accessible only in English. So being there means that I'm already changing the atmosphere because I just look different. Thank you so much for that, Ruth. Super thoughtful. Our new catchphrase is politely indignant. I love it very much. Can we pick up on kind of how Ruth was wrapping up her comments? And Steve, can I start with you? How would you like to see the policy advocacy landscape evolve as it relates to the influence of communities of color? So we identified like lots of us are being kept out of the process. You talked about that. Like, how can we change that? Yeah, I think there, there are many barriers, right, that keep um, marginalized communities outside of the process that I feel that need to be intentionally addressed. For example, like whenever uh, hearings are being held or certain decision-making processes are, are being enacted, the average person is, is working, right? And especially the average person of color is, is working during those times. For example, I, I know one of the requirements to be able to t- testify or to uh, deliver testimony is that you you must be there presently, but I think that can be revisited in light of sort of the barriers that, that comes with that. Some people are not able to go to the Capitol or be at the Capitol to be able to do that. However, their voice is more necessary than, than any others, given the impact that they will feel, given the passage, or if the legislation does not pass, given how that will impact them in their everyday lives. So I think we also need to be able to meet people where they are. I talked about how uh, TLO, for example, which is the Texas Legislature Online, allows people to build track and see what bills, different bill components. But that's also making the assumption that most people have, you know, broadband, which is not the case, right? Most people don't have access to internet. 
are close to their local library. So it's hard for them to be able to see what's going on throughout the legislative process. So I think ways that we can do that is to, for example, make sure that the most pressing sort of updates are also scaled, right? And are part of community newsletters or other forms of mediums that we make sure that can allow people to be more engaged with what's going on in the process. I think one other way that we need to be intentional about this work is to require people that actually are the leaders or the heads of whatever bills that that lawmakers are working on to have a voice in that process, right? I specifically remember with the passage of uh, Senate Bill 17, which would be prohibiting DEI offices within Texas public um, universities and colleges. It took two visiting senators, specifically Senators uh, Menendez and Senator Miles, that were visiting the uh, Higher Education Subcommittee on that hearing. And it was their proposal that, hey, perhaps we should have someone that works in these offices to come and tell us how these offices work, right? So it was interesting to me that lawmakers were pushing for a policy that they hadn't really gotten well-versed about how they work, but because they felt that it has certain points that it, they didn't agree with, um, which was disproved in many, many times, but that's probably beyond the scope of this discussion right now, we're pushing for, right? So I think that all those things need to be revisited, especially as it relates to the impact that it has on marginalized and underserved communities throughout the policymaking process. Thank you so much for that, Steve. Can I ask you, tough to you know, same question, specifically related to communities of color. What are some ways that we can change the policymaking landscape to ensure it's more inclusive of the people that it impacts? Yeah, I would say that we need to talk to the people in our communities that have been active in the advocacy space for years because there have been many people in our communities across the spectrum that have been have seats at the table, but have not been highly sought out because the communities that they come from. And so we've found these people often silenced or ostracized from this conversation, yet these people still show up. We have people who show up and they make new rules or they change the time limit for speaking, which oftentimes makes it hard for us to get messages across. And so ensuring that we are actively going out there and using our voices to vote or actively going out there, whether it be the legislator or we're going out there protesting the things of a sort to loud voices be known because when louder than Obama we come united and we should take time out of our days to just to honor those who came before us but also to let the next generation start because the next generation ultimately is going to be impacted by the new legislation that comes out 
So ensuring that all voices are heard, whether it's the new school or the old school, that's what's most important to me. Yes, I love that. Being more intentional about intergenerational work and opening up space is super important. Ruth, how about you? How would you like to see the policy advocacy landscape evolve to include more communities of color? So I have a couple ideas. The first one is I think that throughout the year, and not not necessarily during session because nobody really has time during session, but throughout the year, we should really encourage our communities to invite their legislators to join them at community events like church events, food drives. It could be a cultural celebration event. Invite them to come in and be there and they'll feel like they're an honored guest. But this is also our way of saying we exist, we belong here, and we're challenging you to come see us in person. And if they decline to come over and over, then we have a case to say, hey, we we have a reason to have a grievance here and our representative is not representing us. The second thing is that if we actively bring in people of all age groups, which goes towards that intergenerational conversation, we can provide mentoring, teaching, explaining procedures and training. Not everyone has to be a lobbyist or a policymaker, but I think everyone should have access to the kind of education that allows them that option. They need the option to have those skills to advocate in this environment, which is one of the many environments and methods of advocacy. There needs to be a commitment to language access and pushing through bills that require documents to be translated. And because policymaking is a long process and that that could take a lot of time to accomplish, we should be actively working on creating trainings and presentations in other languages, reaching out to multilingual communities so that they can join in, bring knowledge back to their communities through their specific perspective. So I think these are all things that would help our landscape evolve and transform in a positive direction. Thank you so much, Ruth. And you're right, a lot of interim work to do to build that up. Jonathan, what about you? What are some ways that you would like to see the advocacy landscape evolve to include more communities of color? When I think about my own community, where I come from, right, like a Latino, Spanish-speaking, immigrant community, a lot of undocumented people, I think that we suffer from a, a sense of feeling like we don't know enough like we don't belong in these spaces, we're inadequately skilled and knowledgeable to be in these spaces. We feel like we have to ask for permission to be in these spaces, or there's like a fear of rocking the boat in any way, especially as like undocumented people who are just barely getting by. And so we feel that it is not our space and we do not feel entitled to take up space and to hold people accountable. And so I really think that there's a lot of work to be doing on the ground in terms of our base building with, you know, these folks who are marginalized from this advocacy space. And to me, that looks like political education. Like we have to do constant, consistent political education so that people know what is happening at the legislature. How does it work? What is happening? What are the bills that affect us and how do they affect us? I think that folks need support and understanding how that works and developing like an analysis of it which isn't to say that people don't already have their own analysis, they live it. Their analysis is how they survive and live in that environment. But I think that really sharpening that through political education networks and equipping people to have the skills to enter that space is going to be very important for these linguistically marginalized people 
um, and racially marginalized people, but also the youth. I think that we really need to center and bring in the youth because, and I tell the students I've worked with before, like education is not something that is done to you. It is something that you are an owner of. This is your education. Um, and so really helping center youth and linguistically and racially marginalized people, I think is very crucial to changing the landscape of advocacy. Thank you so much for that. Diana, how about you? Yeah, I echo what everyone has said. I know for me personally, I wasn't involved in politics because I just didn't understand it. And I strongly believe in closing the knowledge gap is important, but also recognize that it's a deeper systemic issue. And it's very intentional of the state or of these systems to keep people of color uninformed about these spaces. So recognizing that, but also push for more civic education and promoting and facilitating outreach programs that provide resources for resources that can empower individuals and communities to actively participate in the political process. Those are all really important to to keep taking space in these spaces that weren't meant for us, but we should very much be involved in. Thank you all. As we sort of wrap up this episode, I was hoping each of you could just take a minute and say, talk about what sustains your work. You know, several of you have mentioned how emotionally laborious and draining this could be. That is 100% true. And so what sort of tips do you have for people to overcome either advocacy anxiety that they have to find strength in themselves and each other in this work? Um, What are some of the ways that you did that? What can you advise other people who are in this work or thinking about being in it more deeply? And Tuff, can we start with you? Yeah, so for me, I keep in mind my end goal, how I'm accountable for reaching that goal, and how I delayed so many things for these moments. And so I'm not going to let time waste. I'm going to make every second and minute count. And I know what my people deserve, and I'm not going to stop until I get my people what they deserve. And human rights matter, and I'm not going to let our dignity be stripped away any longer. So ensure that I keep that in the back of my mind is very important. Thank you. Tough. How about you, Deanna? I learned while working in the 88th legislative session the importance of maintaining hope and holding on to those small victories because those are essential for perseverance and progress, even though the past seems impossible or the whole world is cracking in our feet. I think maintaining hopeful is is important. And it's a skill that re- still needs to be developed, I feel like, in, in myself. And I don't know if others can relate. But slowly but surely, I think we'll get to a space where we can be celebrating even more victories. Yes, absolutely. And thinking about the many ways that wins and victories show up in our lives because they look like a lot of things and we should celebrate them in all forms. Jonathan, same question to you. I definitely agree with what Diana just said. You know, like hope is a muscle and having this like sense of critical, radical optimism is crucial because I definitely pull from like abolitionist ideas and movements that we don't know if we'll abolish these oppressive structures tomorrow, but we better fight like tomorrow will be the day that they're gone. And I think it's important to understand that children's lives are at stake. 
children are being harmed. And it is abominable that these adults want to jeopardize the well-being of children in the way that they are. And so it's so important for me that we fight for children and with children for the education and the, and the society that, that they deserve to live in. And there needs to be a lot of hope kind of fueling that endeavor, but also joy. We have to find ways to insert joy in our lives during this really laborious process and imagination. What is it that we're fighting for? What is a destination? Not just what are we suffering and fighting against right now, but what is our destination? And how can we start putting those things into practice and building infrastructure for it now and enjoying it now, rather than just always deterring what is out to get us? I love that. Thank you. Ruth, can we turn to you? What sustains your work? What tips do you have for other people? What sustains my work is knowing that there are many ways to make an impact. Policy is just one channel. And so I firmly believe that it's still important to speak truth and get it on the record, even if the committee votes unfavorably, or at least in our opinion, unfavorably on something. But grassroots work and community organizing is absolutely essential. So just because you're struggling to so-called win in one area doesn't mean you can't make progress in another through a different channel. Thank you for that. And Steve, do you want to close this out? What sustains your work, including any practical tips that you might have for other folks? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, for starters, it's really just basking in gratitude for um, those that came for me. I think it's important to realize, you know, just the progress that has been made, right? At a time in history, there was uh, exclusion or people that looked like me could not even attend school. But then it took those that came before me to be able to pave ways um, and advocate for that access to be able to receive an education. I think for me also, knowing my why uh, was really helpful. So figuring out what your why is. Coming from an education background, specifically as it comes to like teaching and mentoring students from marginalized communities, it, it was a very personal experience for me to be able to also advocate on their behalf as well, right? Given that they were being scored during those times and really could at this time can't really understand how policies that are in procedure would impact them in the future. So being that voice for them was really impactful for me and was also something that sustained my work. And just also working with other coalition partners, knowing that an absence of our work will perpetuate barriers for historically marginalized communities was also really a service fuel to, to continue to do our work, even with the challenges that it came with. So those were some ways that really kept me going. Thank you all so much for your reflections this episode. As you all know, one of the reasons that we started the fellowship is that, you know, so many of us were the only ones in rooms or the only ones providing testimony who looked like us and reflected the majority of children in our public school system. So really just appreciate all of you being part of changing that landscape, your thoughtfulness on what the future of that looks like, and just really the courage and hope that it took to do this work in Texas and Georgia. Thank you all so much. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email 
to podcast at idra.org.